So glad you're here tonight. Um, if you think the sheet I gave you is a little tough to read, that is because it was supposed to have some color coding to it. Only my printer in my office is running out of some of those colors, and I did not know it. But it was still clear enough. But then when I went to copy it on the other copier, I guess I did not hit color to color. So you got gray and black. So if you don't like this sweet sheet, I got great news for you. We're going to print it again, and it'll look right next week. So uh, it'll be, be all right. Now here's what we're going to do. Um, we started some church history stuff this summer, and I intend to come back to it. But a couple things have happened along the way. Um, one, as I was working through some of the stuff I've already taught through church history, I really don't like my notes were great for what I was doing in that setting then. I don't like how they are for this setting for us. And to do what I think would be most helpful will require some pretty extensive uh, time to do that, which, so that's one. Two, we've been in Daniel. We're doing these seven letters in Revelation. So it's very natural to jump out of Daniel into the, the middle of Revelation, the crazy stuff. I would never preach through the crazy stuff on Sunday morning because it's crazy, and I think it's better for a setting like this where it's a little more laid back, where I can chase some rabbit trails. We can be a little more informal, even have some possibility for questions. So it just occurred to me that it's a very natural time for us to look and do that. Uh, two, in this fall season and not knowing when the arrival of my son is coming, it's a little bit more streamlined for me to be preparing out of part of Revelation on Sundays and preparing out for the others, and I think it'll be, be better quality. So we're going to do it a little different. We're going to spend the, the next few weeks walking through the middle portion uh, of Revelation. But before we do that, I thought it would be helpful to just do a basic, broad, and tonight's going to be a little more just informational. Just informational on what are some key terms or key ideas that, that come up when we work our way through a future prophecy like Revelation. And, and part of why I want to do this and give you this, she this sheet, my intention is for you to keep it with you. Uh, I am not, I, I try my hardest when we're walking through stuff to not, uh, if you will, default to just using the seminary terms because the reality is kind of the, the right seminary, they teach all these terms and the reality is no one outside of seminary has a clue what those terms are. Some of them are important and you need to know some of them aren't important, they're just academic. My concern is walking through something like Revelation, I will default to certain terms. So I figured it'd be easier to just give you a cheat sheet of those terms, a reference sheet, and that way, you know, what's he mean? So tonight's just kind of a, a, a broad overview. I'm not going, and, it's, and it's, it's meant to be broad. There's some things I'll touch on, like the millennial kingdom, rapture, that I could go way, way deeper, but that's kind of the point of what we're going to be doing as we walk through Revelation. Tonight, I just want to give kind of some broad overview and some basic points. So the first thing you have on your, on your sheet is a definition. It's the term eschatology, S. Catology, or if you want to, I guess, pronounce it out, S-E-S, uh, uh, instead of saying ch, ka, eschatology. It comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means last or last things. So simply put, the term eschatology is the study of last things. And by last things, we mean like the end of humanity, the end of history. It's the study of end times. When we speak about it in a theological way, and this is on your, I'll read it off, it is the section of, of systematic theology which is focused specifically on death, judgment, final destiny of the soul and humankind, as well as the return of Christ. That's what eschatology is. It's just, it's simply put, it's the study of the end times. Now, you're going to hear me use it probably in a variety of ways, hence I've given you other forms. Eschatological, eschatologically speaking, the eschaton, the eschaton would be the end times. So eschatology, that's what we're talking about. I don't care if you ever use that phrase with me or not. I just know I'm not going to be able to always never use that phrase. So you, you need to have that. The church age. The church age is a term, I'm not sure how much I'll use it or not, but it is helpful for you to know what it is. Most of the time in theology, when we refer to the church age or the age of the church, we're talking about that time period after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven from that moment until his return 
or some might say until the beginning of the seven years of tribulation, depending on their views of the end, the end time. So right now, here's what I can tell you. We are living in the age of the church. We are living in the period of history where Jesus has come, he was born, he, he's lived, he's died, he's risen, the gospel message has gone out, salvation is real, the kingdom has come in part, but not yet in full, because he hasn't come back for the second time like he said he would and usher in the kingdom. So we live, what is God's primary means for, for um, choose the right term here, the primary means, what is God's primary means of reaching the world in the church age? The church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. While Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father on the throne. So, we live in the age of the church. Now, when you move on from there, when we come to the book of Revelation specifically, there are four basic ideas, frameworks of how to read the book. And all four of these have existed and have been popular in varying ways and varying times in church history. There is the preterist view. This is the first one on your sheet. It looks at the book of Revelation and everything that Revelation describes other than maybe perhaps the very, very, very end, but it looks at the events of Revelation as things that are taking place presently at the time of the writing. So when, you, you know, when, when, when he talks about the bowls of wrath and the, the beast and the mark of the beast, that's all, he, that's all talking about things that are occurring at the end of the first century that John is writing to. That's the preterist view. So therefore, when we read it today, nearly the entire book refers to events that have already come and gone. That's one way that Christians have looked at the book of Revelation. Another way, the historical view. The historical view looks at the book of Revelation and understands the events that were written in it to all be future at the time of its writing, but not necessarily future to us today. Some of the things may have already been fulfilled in history in between the 1900 years from the writing of Revelation to today. And so our task is not to automatically assume that everything written is something yet to come, but it's to go look back and see, are there fulfillment of these things in history? That's the historical approach. The symbolic or idealist approach looks at the events in Revelation in a totally different way. It's not looking at the events in Revelation through the lens of literal events and, and things taking place in history. Instead, it's looking at the things described in Revelation as symbolically referring to timeless truths, which are always applicable to God's people in, in, in any day and time. The fourth view is the futuristic view which says most of, the majority of, the events described in Revelation were future at the time of writing and are still future to us today. They have yet to be fulfilled. And many of these events that have yet to be fulfilled, there seems to be a, a cluster of them that will happen in, in succession, close together, suddenly, and, and at the end of time. That's the futurist view. The futurist view, uh, if I had to guess, is the view most of us in this room are most familiar with, and by and large, in my opinion, is the correct view. Now, here is the reality. There's a little bit of nuggets of each of these in reality, because John, when he wrote Revelation, was writing a real letter that had a real purpose to real churches who were really suffering. So there is a very literal, at the time of the writing, application to it. Thus far, it's, it's how we've walked through in Sunday in chapter 1. It's how we're going to walk through the, these next seven weeks in the seven letters. There is a real, literal, tangible, uh, the church in Ephesus was facing issues at that time literally, and as we walk through it, we're going to look at that, and then how does that apply to us today? So there is a little bit of truth that some uh, there historically there are uh, there are some things 
that you could make a case may have been fulfilled. They're absolutely in, in the book. There are things that are timeless truths that are just true. Jesus reigns. Is that not a timeless truth? Yes, it's a timeless truth. But by and large, when we come to the book of Revelation, it seems most apparent that the overwhelming majority of it is, in fact, future. So if you go, Pastor, where do you stand? Obviously, I'm primarily in the futuristic view camp. The bulk of Revelation refers to events that are prophesied and have yet to come to completion. So there's your basic kind of four categories that people will, from that framework, look at Revelation. Now, here's the best of what we're going to do as we walk through Revelation. And, and this will be fun uh, because I, I will have never done as in-depth of a study of the middle portion of Revelation as what I'll do with y'all. So it'll be fun on my end. It'll be churning through some stuff afresh that I haven't looked at in a long time. But as we walk through Revelation, let me take us back to a year ago, a year and a half ago, and we talked through how do we read our Bibles? How do we, how do we study Bible scripture well well one we have to not start with automatic assumptions other than it's it is true and god wrote it and it's authoritative over my life and sufficient to strengthen and guide and feed me for what i face in knowing god and, and living the christian life today we're going to start with that assumption but we need to be careful to not all already come and go well i already i, I read all 12 left actually 13 left behind books so i already know what revelation says that's great i'm not knocking left behind appreciate tim lahay but tim lahay's not god and uh, the Left Behind series is not the book of Revelation. So it's inspired by. So all that to say, we're going to walk through it as best we can. What does this text say? What is clear? What is unclear? What is clear we're going to stand on? What is unclear? Because it's Wednesday, we might trace some rabbit trails and do some safe speculation. But we're not going to just fully speculate and come in. If you're going to go, well, what? Wes is about to tell me every single thing going on today and how the revelation matches up with it. I, I, I'm going to disappoint you if that's your expectation. Uh, I'm not going to do that. If there's stuff that's obvious, we'll, we'll point there. We'll look there. But we're going to walk through. And, and first and foremost, as we walk through any passage in Revelation, we're going to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And we're going to start with that, meaning Revelation 4 should be interpreted in light of Revelation first, and then the rest of Scripture beyond. That's what we're going to do. So... When you come to the end times, though, broadly speaking, there are, two major, there are two major questions. And I would always hear these terms growing up in a pastor's home and people throwing these out, and, and I, it just confused me for the longest time, these terms, because they get thrown out and no one ever sat down and defined them all. But there's essentially two questions that come up if, if we understand that the book of Revelation, that the end times are something future yet to have arrived, then there's two questions that naturally come up from Revelation, and we're going to approach them kind of in maybe what, what might appear to some as a, as a backwards, but it is actually the way that we've got to. So the first question is, what do you do? And if you've got your Bibles, feel free to, to turn there. What do you do with Revelation chapter 20? So Revelation 19 is the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the coming of Christ on, uh, to, to defeat. It's the doom of the beast and the false prophet. Uh, the beginning of chapter 20, Satan is bound. And it says in verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out and deceive the nations, and it goes on from there. The first question we come to is, what do you make of the thousand years that are just mentioned there? It says that. John describes the scene. I saw them sitting on thrones, giving judgment. You saw the souls of those who had given their lives for Christ, and they were brought into the first resurrection. Blessed are those who have part of the first resurrection. 
you, you want to be in that group. You don't want to be in the group that is part of the second resurrection. So the question is, what do you do with this thousand years? What do you do with what seems to be two distinct resurrections of the dead? What do we make of that? And so when it comes to that, there are, we'll stick with our favorite number here for the day uh, of, uh, well, it's three. I about to say four. It's, it's only four because there's some subcategories, but it's really three broad movements. One would be what we called, and by the way, as I, as I describe these, let me, let me make sure you know that there are, I know there, I, I was before my time, put it that way, before my time, but in some of your times, the discussion around your views of end times got really feisty in the church to where if you didn't hold the exact position that I understand everything, you're not even saved. And, I'm, and that's not an exaggeration. Some of y'all have probably encountered some like that. That's not how I roll with the end times. There's, when, we, when we can look at future prophecy and say, I can answer every pr- question about future prophecy, woo, well, look how badly those who knew the Bible better than us missed it the first go around with Jesus. Maybe we should be a little bit more, more humble. I'm not saying you can't have an opinion and you can't feel strongly and convicted about it. I, I'm, that's great. But we need to be humble we need to be firm with things, and I'll, and I'll swear I'll end tonight. What is un- undeniably clear? That if we deny this, yes, then we have actual problems with the faith versus what things are. Because here's the interesting thing. The three views I'm going to tell you in the two subsets of, of one of them, there are Christian leaders whom you trust, whom you quote as influential in your life who hold each of these positions. But if we get dogmatic and say, well, if you hold that position, you're not really a Christian, well, then you can't quote that person who's, who's literally you've gone to and said, man, they really taught me about the, the divine inspiration of Scripture and how Scripture doesn't. So we need to be charitable and understand throughout church history, all, all three of these views have had different times where they have been the seat at the table of popularity among the church. All three have had it. So the first is this, post-millennialism, post-millennialism. The idea, the name post-millennialism is the idea that whatever the millennium is, and, and we'll define it in a second, Jesus comes after it. That's why it's post-millennial. Jesus comes after the millennium, the millennium mentioned in Revelation 20. Well, if Jesus comes after, then what is the millennium? Well, post-millennialism would hold to the idea that the millennium is a it's not a literal 1,000 years, but it is a long period of time that began at Christ's resurrection when Satan in his dominion and power over the world was bound and the gospel has gone forth and what will happen is that the gospel, more and more of the world will respond in repentance to the gospel until either the majority or all of the world will come to faith in Christ and that's when Jesus will return. It is an optimistic view of history getting better and better and better and better and better and more Christ-like. And not surprisingly, do you know the periods of history where this was the popular view? the periods of history where a church-state government controlled most of the known world. So the days of Constantine, wow, Christianity's legal now. It's the religion. It's not per- Look at more and more people responding. This was the dominant view of the late 1800s. Why? Who are your major world powers? America? Britain? Various European nations, all at the heart of their, um, and I'm using this in a very literal sense, not in the way that's gotten real dramatic in our day and age, but in their colonial expansion, what went with that? Their state, now not America, because we don't have a state church, but those other nations have a state church. What went with that? So there was this view that also went along with the philosophical idea of modernity. We keep discovering more discoveries and the world keeps becoming better, better and better and better and better. And you know what blew all that up? World War I and World War II. And especially in the fallout from World War II, which starting in Europe was the beginning of postmodernism and the rejection of organized religion, especially Christianity which has led to where Europe is today and, and thus 
coming on over. So this was a popular view 150 years ago. It's not as popular today because obviously we're not living in a day and time where we see more and more and more getting better and better and better. Uh, in terms of uh, what, is, what is, so if, if I had a whiteboard and I could draw you out, what I would draw you is this picture. Here's the cross. That's going to be Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And then I would draw you a line. This is the church age. And somewhere in here, things get better and better. Now, some post-millennialists, there might be a variation where they say, well, there will be a little bit of tribulation before Jesus comes back, but basically it's just better and better, and then boom, Jesus is back. There's no seven years. There's no, uh, the millennium is something, uh, I guess we could use the word symbolic, though, though it's literal. It's just not literal thousand years. It's just the world coming more and more and more to faith in Christ. Now, you go, well, I don't, I don't agree with that, Pastor. That doesn't seem, well, I don't agree with it either. But do you want to know who does? Jonathan Edwards. How many of us have quoted him as a great Christian man? Some in here might like the writings of R.C. Sproul, B.B. Warfield. There's several who, and that's what I mean, we've got to be somewhat charitable. Listen, I don't agree with Jonathan Edwards, but I will happily acknowledge he is a far smarter man than I am. So, that's the post that's a basic understanding of what post millennialism is and it has always been popular when it seems the church is actually winning the world in their estimation and whatever the the estimation of the world is the second view that in some ways you could make a case for the first 1900 years of church history was was indistinct from post millennialism and then there began to be a shift. Because your other option, let me put this way, and we'll get to saying it. You've got Jesus either comes back after a millennium or Jesus comes back before the millennium, right? You kind of got, it's kind of two-sided, kind of binary. You can either come before or you can come after. You mean, well, you can come during, huh? yes, and, I, and maybe in a sense that's what we might call millennialism, but, but not really. So, so if this is your other option, and you can go, if my other option is Jesus comes back before, but I don't believe this thousand years is literal or it's something Jesus comes back before, but I also acknowledge the world's not just going to get better and better and better and better. What's my option? And so it came to be distinct as post-millennialism waned is a view that we call amillennialism. 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 Amillennialism is the idea that the millennium reign of Christ is purely symbolic. And it is symbolic of the reign of Jesus in and through the church. You say, well, that doesn't sound as... Well, here's the distinction. Amillennialism does not necessarily hold that more and more of the world's going to repent and turn to faith in Christ until most of the world follows Jesus and He returns. Amillennialism, the ah, world can get far, far worse. They just view the, 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 the millennium, it's just symbolic. It's just symbolic for what Jesus is doing in and through the church, which is not just is that going to be symbolic, but they're going to look at some of the, the heart of uh, Revelation, those chapters 4 through, uh, through 20. They're going to look at it and go, and instead, of, instead of some of these things being events and subsequent events, these are, these are things that are highly symbolic that are that are going to go that are going to go together they're going to look at the two resurrections and that's honestly one of the biggest challenges of the position they're going to look at the two resurrections and say well it's not talking about two literal physical resurrections the first resurrection is some kind of spiritual resurrection akin to salvation so those who are in Christ the second resurrection is when everybody gets put back in their body and obviously those of us who are in Christ we get a glorified body those who aren't in Christ they just get a reanimated body but it's going to be the same weak able to experience pain and suffering body they've got now this is how they this is how amillennialism would would take uh, take what is there they're going to view the book of revelation as consisting of seven sections and instead of successive time periods, these seven sections use apocalyptic language to describe the entire time from, from, from Jesus' first coming to his second coming, but it's describing it in different ways. So naturally, when you think about those four 
go back to the four interpretive frameworks, amillennialists are going to be drawn to a maybe a preterist view or a historical view or a symbolic idealist review that's going to see there. So things like the Great Tribulation, well, that comes out in disasters, wars, persecutions that have come throughout church history. They, they see the 1,000 years figuratively. The second coming of the Christ and the resurrection of the saved and the unsaved will be at the same time, which means the saints are on, the Christians are on the earth during the tribulation. So if, again, if you're going to kind of draw a, kind of draw a, Draw a, draw a time chart, and we have a whiteboard coming, by the way. So I, I, I'll draw all this soon for you. Just not here yet. So we put a cross for Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, his first coming. And then we might draw a line of history that goes like this, and at the same time draw a parallel line above it. And this line would be tribulation. Saints have tribulation in the world, and the millennium is now Jesus symbolic, or symbolically the millennium is now Jesus reigning through his people until Jesus returns, puts an end to suffering, tribulation, and we reign with him in glory. Ah, uh, millennialism. Uh, you go, well, I, I don't know that that's where I am, Pastor. Well, that's fine. Uh, that's where J Martin Luther was, the reformer. That's where John Calvin was. That's where Herschel Hobbes was, J.I. Packer. Uh, so many of the books of the last 20th century that, that people hold. Uh, if you've ever read and you, you have a, uh, an affection for um, uh, Augustine, St. Augustine, he's an amillennialist. So these are people who fall in that camp. Now, the other option is what we call premillennialism. Want to take a wild guess what premillennialism is? It's when Jesus comes before the thousand years. So the belief with premillennialism is that the millennium is, is not, it's not symbolic. It's not some gradual process. It is something literal that is yet to come. It's in the future. And whatever it is takes place after Jesus comes for the second time. What we would call the second coming of Jesus, the millennium, takes place after this. By the way, when you look at church history, this seems to be what was likely the dominant view of the early, early church, uh, the, the, the beginnings of the church. We've heard names uh, several months ago, and I used the word names Justin the Martyr, uh, Irenaeus. They were, they were of a premillennial disposition. It's committed to, to a, a literal earthly reign of Jesus Christ, for approximately a thousand years. Some may say, nope, a thousand years on the dot. Some may say, well, it's just an approximation, a substantially long physical period of time. But the key is that Jesus physically comes back and physically stands on this earth and he rules over the entirety of this earth for a thousand years. That's the basic idea that there's going to go from the world's going to get worse and worse. There's a seven years of tribulation that's unlike anything the world has ever seen. And then the trump's going to sound. Jesus is going to return. And there's going to be a sudden and cataclysmic change where he ushers in peace. And there is a literal thousand-year kingdom. Now, when you come to premillennialism, there's two broad subcategories. And I think I have this on your sheet. There should be two little dots under it. It says historic, historical premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism. Uh, here, here's some of the, kind of the key. So let me, let me draw it this way. If I had a map, both are going to have this. Here's the cross, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, his first coming. We're going to draw a line. This is the age of the church. And then this line's going to stop, and you're going to have a seven years of tribulation, and then you're going to have Jesus return, and then you're going to have a millennium after. Now, that's what they both agree on. There's differences that I haven't added to our imaginary whiteboard here that doesn't exist and probably isn't that helpful to most of you, but it's how I'm processing it. So, historical premillennialism is going to be the idea that there is not a rapture of all Christians prior to the seven years of tribulation. Instead, you and I as Christians, let's, you know, we've said, according to Daniel, and, and by the way, I would be of a premillennial disposition. 
Uh, part of why I cannot get away from the idea of a seven years of tribulation is when you walk through Daniel 9, which we did a few weeks back, where it talks about, there's, you're going to tell me that these 69 sevens are literal that add up to the coming of Christ, but then the seventh seven isn't literal? That doesn't jive. The seventh seven would imply a period of seven years. It says halfway through it that the Antichrist, this ruler, is going to he's going to start. He's going to inaugurate with a covenant of peace with Israel, and halfway through it, he's going to break it. So, I am of the disposition, especially from Daniel, that there is. Oh, look at that. The next question is: We have a marker. Oh, look at that. <laughs> there you go. I don't know if anybody will draw big enough for this. Here we go. Here's our cross. Here's our, here's our church age. Here's our seven years. Here's Christ's return. And there's on into the future. The idea would be that, that you and I would wake up one day and we would see some governing ruler who enters into a peace treaty with Israel and we would experience as Christians the seven years of tribulation until either we are martyred for our faith and obviously our soul departs to go to heaven to be with the Lord or until we make it all the way to the trumps resounding and Jesus returning uh, at, at the, the second coming. Historical premillennialists see... see the church as taking the place of Israel. So when you read through Revelation and you see things that talk about Israel, it's not referring to literal Israel, the Jewish people that, that God had a covenant with. It's talking about the church as the new Israel would be what is, what is referred to there. Uh, again, the, key, the biggest distinction, I'm watching the time, so I'm going to move a little faster because I told you I would, this wouldn't be a deep dive, just broad. But historical premillennialism is, is probably one of the views we can see most clearly from the earliest of church history. Uh, you're going to see Irenaeus, John, Justin Martyr, likely Papias. In modern day times, David Dockery, the new president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and the foremost Southern Baptist expert on secondary education would be this. Uh, uh, George R. Beasley Murray uh, and some others who would be in this category. The other category with which everybody's probably much more familiar is dispensational premillennialism. Now, in fairness, dispensationalism as a theology is, is bigger than just premillennialism. I'm not trying to tackle that tonight. We're just talking about the view of premillennialism. The distinction with dispensational premillennialism would be a much harder distinction that Israel is separate and distinct from the church in that the, the people of Israel, the, the ethnic people, the ethnic Jews, the, the geopolitical nation of Israel, still has a part to play that the prophecies in the Old Testament around Israel that have yet to be fulfilled are going to be fulfilled by God. So when you think of some of those prophecies in books like Joel or Zechariah or things where it talks about how the world will be ruled in peace from Mount Zion and, and God will sit, it's 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 being understood literally that during that thousand years reign of Christ, Jesus, the, the branch of David, is going to sit on the literal throne of David and rule this world. That, that would, but, but seeing that distinction as the, the millennium will have a very distinctive Jewish flavor in it. Now, the other, one of the key differences between dispensational and historical is dispensational would say this. Somewhere in this seven years, there is a quiet return of Jesus to rapture his church. Now, I'll do two marks. Some hold that that happens at the beginning of the tribulation. Some will say, no, it happens halfway through the tribulation before God's wrath is poured out during the tribulation. Both of those and those would be, the, those would be in, in terms, of, terms of the rapture, these are on your sheet, pre-tribulation, pre-trib, or pre-wrath or mid-trib. I didn't write mid-trib on your sheet, but pre-wrath and mid-tribulation are the same, the same thing. Now, 
as a full-fledged end times view, this seems to have be the most more recent of all the ones that are out there. It's not me saying it's wrong, but it's the more recent. It seems to really gain steam uh, in the 1800s. Uh, there's a lot of people you and I would know. Uh, John MacArthur lands here. Charles Stanley lands here. The apologist Norman Geisler lands here. Of course, the person that everyone, uh, Charles Ryrie is here. And by the way, the reason that this view of the end times is so, so popular especially in the 20th century, is in part because Ryrie wrote a study Bible, and guess what the notes on Revelation pointed all towards? And guess how many people got that study Bible and read and then go, ah, that makes sense, I've got it. So that's part of how this view has spread. Uh, obviously, the other part is one of the other prominent people is a man by the name of Tim LaHaye. <laughs> and hence, this is the version of what's of the end times that he holds to that is played out in uh, in the book of Revelation. Now, before I move to the rapture, here's, here's what you need to know about the thousand years. This thousand years is not new heaven and new earth. Okay? says for a thousand years that Satan was bound. The idea is that Jesus returns at the second coming, that all of us who are in Christ, who are dead, are brought back to our bodies. Those who are still alive, they depending on how you want to go with it, but those who are alive, their bodies would be transformed in an instant, and all of us would be part, as Christians, of the first resurrection. And we would all live, literally, bodily, on this earth for a thousand years of peace with Jesus Christ reigning from the throne of David out of Israel. And there's more you can go on in that expansion. Well, why would that be? How would this be? And that's not fully what I'm trying to accomplish tonight. We're going to have to deal with that as we work through Revelation anyway, so we'll save it for later. But, but then, at the end of that thousand years, Revelation 20 says that Satan is loosed to deceive the nations. It says, and then of course you go from there, it's already mentioned there's a second resurrection of the dead for judgment. And that's when, and, we for, and, I, and I think there are two distinct resurrections. That's why I say we're part of the first, because if you're part of the second, you get judged at the great white throne. Well, if you're in Christ, we don't do the great white throne judgment. That's when God separates the sheep and the goat and praise God, as dumb as sheep are, we're in the sheep, <laughs> safe. <laughs> not with the goats who are not safe. And that takes you into the rest of Revelation where it talks about the, the dead Hades and, and the sea and the, they gave up the dead and, and anyone's name not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So you've got after this thousand years, Satan is loosed. He gets all of, and this is going to cause someone to have a question. Feel free to ask it. I don't have a full answer for it. I can give you some thoughts. Satan's going to get loosed, rally all of the forces of evil. Then you're going to have the final, final battle. And at that final battle, Jesus is going to take Satan, the beast, the false prophet, throw him in the lake of fire. He's going to judge all of the wicked, all those without Christ, all the lost, who will be sentenced to the lake of fire forever. And realize that's both spiritual and physical. The dead will be resurrected into, into bodies, but you hear me use the term, we get a glorified body like that of Jesus not prone to sin, not given to death, not a glorified body, which you hear me use for those who are lost, they get, and I am intentional with this, a reanimated body. You know, God will pull all the dust of the ground that made their body back together, but, but it's not going to be glorified. It's not going to be a body that's impervious to pain, that's impervious. It'll be a body in which for eternity they suffer physically and spiritually as the price of sin which all of us, by the way, lest we forget, all of us deserve. All of our own righteous deeds have earned us that sentence. It's only by the righteous deeds of Christ that we have salvation from that, from that sentence. And so that when that judgment happens, you and I as believers, 1 Corinthians 3, will face a different judgment, an evaluation, if you will, where our life What's at stake for us is not eternity. What's at stake for us is some level of reward in eternity that Scripture leaves somewhat ambiguous because all Christians get new heaven and new earth. All Christians get to see Jesus. All Christians live. But there's some level to which those of us who've lived more faithful than others, there's a higher level of reward there in eternity. You're going to go, well, what is that, Pastor? I, I don't know. Scripture doesn't tell, tell us. It just says there is. This is 1 Corinthians 3 
when we as believers will stand before Jesus Christ, our life will be set on his altar. And in all of our life will either be wood, hay, and straw or gold, silver, and precious jewels. His holy refining fire will fall on it. And obviously the, the imagery is if, if we've built our life worthlessly, uh, it's to our loss. It burns up. But if we've built our life seeking to honor Jesus and, and by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, fulfill his will for our lives, it's gold, silver, precious. Well, what happens when gold, silver, and precious jewels hit with refiner's fire? They grow more pure, more strong, more beautiful to our reward. So that, that's where that takes place. So a thousand years, final battle, judgment of the wicked. Uh, we'll call it a valuation of the righteous just to kind of distinguish between. And then you have the rest of Revelation 21 and 22. Behold, I look and I saw a new heaven and new earth and new Jerusalem was coming down and that's where we will spend all eternity. So that's how the rest of that plays out. Now with regard to the rapture, the question about the rapture on your sheet, when is the return of Christ? How many times does Christ return? Well, that's the idea. Does Jesus just come back as his second coming one event? If it's just one and one only, then he's coming back at the end of the tribulation. There's no rapture. If his return involves a, a quiet or secret return, well, then that would imply that he comes back either at, before, the rap, before the tribulation or in the middle of the tribulation, and he pulls out the church. And then you have the seven years of tribulation in which uh, people are still going to come to faith in Christ, likely many of the uh, house of Israel. And then he returns fully and... and uh, all the way to earth, the second go-around. And your options there are pre-trib, Jesus comes back before the seven years, mid-trib or pre-wrath, he comes back in the middle before the wrath of God is poured out, or post-trib simply just means there is no rapture, Jesus comes back once for all at the end of the seven years. Those are your three distinctions with, and you're going to have questions, what are the, great, we're going we're gonna to study Revelation, so that's why I'm not trying to answer all of that. Uh, tonight. But here are the hard facts. Here's what we do know regardless of questions surrounding the millennium and the rapture. Here is what we know. Jesus's return is a real literal event that has yet to occur. He is coming back. Scripture is clear. Jesus was clear in his own words. He is coming back. It's not a metaphorical return. It's not allegorical. It's not sim symbolical. Oh, Jesus will come back once you know, symbolically when the whole world has given to love like Jesus. And by the way, that's some of the nonsense that is out there running around claiming to be Christian. I just didn't go through that tonight because we didn't need to. It's real. Jesus is literally coming back as true as the earth is literally going to spin on its axis tonight and we're going to watch the sun disappear to come back up tomorrow. Jesus is coming back. Jesus' return is unknown to most. It says very clearly in Scripture, Jesus said only the Father, the angels, nor even the Son know the time of His return. Now some will debate post, the, post His ascension, does Jesus know now or not? We're not getting into that discussion. The point is, at most, only God knows. The angels don't know the time of His return. We don't know the times of His return. It's interesting. We are told to pay attention and heed the signs. There's certain things that are going to begin to take place more and more frequently, certain signs that are, that are going to take place prior to Jesus' return, and we're to pay attention. But the reason we're to pay attention is so we don't give up. It's so we, we walk faithfully. It's not because somehow if we pay attention enough, one of us is going to be the one lucky winner who predicted everything correctly on the March Madness bracket. So the truth is, we don't know when Jesus is coming back. And our job is certainly to pay attention, but to, to in the words of Paul, resist the urge to fall into speculation and endless genealogies which become fruitless. Because there are some people who can give you everything that's going to happen at the end of time, but they couldn't tell you the last time that they actually served as the hands and feet of Jesus. We, 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 we're called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Okay. Unknown to most. The nature of the return. It's personal. Jesus himself actually returns. Not an emissary for him, not an ambassador, not an angelic host. Jesus himself returns. It's bodily. How did Jesus ascend into heaven? In a physical body. What did the angels tell the disciples there in Acts 1? Just as he went up, he's coming back. So how does that mean he's coming back? In a real physical body. That he'll take his real 
hands and wipe the tears from her eyes. It will be visible. Scripture's clear. And in the passages that talk about Christ's return, it will be seen by the whole world. It's visible. It's unexpected in the sense of it's sudden. Scripture's clear. Jesus in Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 5. The idea that just like in Noah's day, people gave no attention to Noah, to the impending disaster. They were marrying, getting married. They were drinking, having fun. They were living just like humans have always lived. And then it happened. That's the implication from Jesus, is that people, which is really wild, and I don't fully fathom how it's going to look like, you're going to have all this turmoil take place and disaster in the tribulation, unlike anything the world's ever seen. And people are still, because sinful man is sinful man, still going to be living just like they do today, not paying attention. And then Jesus will return like a thief in the night. It will be sudden, unexpected. It will be triumphant and glorious. What did, what did Daniel see? I saw the Son of Man riding on the cloud, the cloud of glory. It'll be triumphant, Jesus. Oh, I love Revelation 19. Comes riding down on a white horse. How does he defeat the most powerful, wicked human who's ever lived? With a breath, like a kid picking a dandelion. I mean, it's just remarkable. It's triumphant. It's glorious. And by the way, church family, we get to share in that glory. In fact, what is it? Paul writes in Romans 8, for I count the present sufferings as, as nothing in view of the surpassing greatness of the glory which is coming. For I have considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed among us, coming from a man who was caught up into the third heaven and saw it. We should heed his word, church family. So what do we do with all this? And there's something on your paper that says the imminence of the second coming. That we'll get into that. That's nothing pertinent for tonight. So here's, here's what we need to walk away. We don't, there's, there's some of us who are terrified of the end times. And there's some of us who are infatuated with end times. And the reality is we don't need to live in fear and we don't need to live in pointless speculation. Instead, we need to study, know what's clear so that it causes us to long for the return of Jesus and to live lives of faithfulness in light of the fact He is coming back. Praise God. And so we will, we will spend, uh, don't know exactly how many weeks, but the next several weeks, maybe a month or two, walking through, uh, walking through this middle portion uh, of Revelation, remembering that John really wrote what we think as a confusing book to seven real churches who were all suffering. And he meant it to be a real encouragement to spur them on to know, love, and follow Jesus more and more than even they were. So uh, let me do this. I know if, if you've got choir, some have already bounced out. I don't want to keep if someone's in choir uh, and needs to bounce out, please feel free to do that. But I will give, since we've got a couple minutes till seven, is there any just quick question related to this tonight? that I need to clarify for anybody. As far as us not knowing and only God knows, does that also um, apply to the mark of the beast? Like what the mark will be? Yeah, like what it will be. No, I mean, I think the implication is when we get there that Christians will recognize the mark of the beast for what it is, which is why they say, no, I won't take it. Do we know today when it's yet to come out yet what it is? The best we could do is speculate. So that's kind of one of those not yet, you know, we can speculate. There's some ideas, certainly some things, you know, talk of microchipping people's arms and, and foreheads. That, that sounds eerily similar, but, but we will know once it gets here because it will be clear that to accept that mark, whatever it is, is to declare the Antichrist is God. And Christians won't do it. And that'll be the, the, the distinction. So, in the back. Um, I don't know if you know, I don't know if you know this question, but I may have mentioned before, but as far as the thousand year reign, so when Satan is reduced to, to go out to deceive the world, does that mean that? Does that mean there's lost people on the world in the thousand year reign? Right, after Christ <laughs> returned and his reign for a thousand years, how, how does that? We'll cover that more in depth when we get there, but I will tell you there are some who would hold that those who are alive when Jesus returns but aren't saved somehow are given some kind of extension of life where they're not saved but they can't just run amok in their sin. 
You're going to go, what does that mean, Pastor? I, 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 don't, I can't answer that for you. I'm just telling you what is out there and, and discussed, which if that's true, here's what's amazing about that to me on a pastoral note. If that's true, that means there are human beings who will see the literal second coming of Jesus Christ fulfilling every single word of Scripture, who will see Him in all His glory reigning, and who will still say, I hate you. And that should open our eyes to the real depth of the rebellion of what being a sinner is because every one of us in this room were born that way. How much more remarkable any one of us has tasted of the grace of God and that, and that Jesus would even want a fool with coming to save us. That's remarkable. Wow. So, yes, there is discussion about that. Do I have an answer for you tonight? No. <laughs> but we'll have to get there as we walk through it. It's a great question. It's a very logical question. And there, there's stuff from Daniel that I chose not to take you on the rabbit trail from that I privately have wondered, huh, I wonder if that is a reference to lost people being allowed to live in the millennial kingdom. But we'll get there. Any other questions? All right. Well, I hope this was at least helpful as a foundation as we begin to walk through uh, I am nervously excited about what we're going to do on Wednesdays because, like I said, this will be a different level of depth walking through. Um, I feel like the joke is every like youth pastor, you know, let's talk about Revelation. I, I was not that way, but it does seem very fitting given the times we're living in, given having walked out of Daniel, Daniel really being a, a, an interpretive, critical interpretive framework for understanding Revelation and the fact that we're walking through and allowing the Lord to examine us as we walk through the seven letters. Um, uh, be prayerful for all our hearts for Sunday. I think the passage Sunday might be the single most pertinent passage to the American church and the entirety of the Word of God. It's my opinion. It's not thus saith the Lord. Um, but I think, and I think, if I can get through Sunday and not have my own toes stepped on, I think I'm a blind man because of the reality of what God tells, Jesus tells to the Ephesian church. And what is, of the seven churches, I think the harshest of all seven rebukes. So uh, be in prayer for all our hearts Sunday, for all of us to have open eyes to see the glory of God and humble hearts to respond to whatever He would move and stir in our hearts. And um, love you, church family. Appreciate you uh, being here. And uh, praise God, He is... Until he comes back, he is at work and we get to be a part of it. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you that you are coming back. That God following you will not, not an ounce of it will be wasted. Jesus, you said it. Whatever a person gives up, family, wealth, fame, you can go on down the line, that they would be, those things which would be the most precious and hardest to give up, they would be rewarded tenfold in heaven. So Lord, may we be people whose hearts love and adore and worship you. You will not leave us hanging. You, Lord, you have not promised us. If, Lord, you've pretty much guaranteed us if we follow you, we're going to face sorrow and hardship. So Lord, may we not grow discouraged. May we not grow weary of doing good. But Lord, as we see the day approaching. May we all the more love you. May we all the more spur one another on to love and good deeds. May we all the more walk with you. Jesus, we love you. Thank you that you first loved us. It's in your name I pray. Amen.